Well, uh, Friedrich Langfeld was born in 1921 and served in Germany's military during World War II. In 1944, Langfeld participated in the Battle of Hürtgen Forest, or Hürtgenwald. Uh, this was a terrible part of World War II uh, in, a, in a kind of forest lasting months and months. Thousands of soldiers were killed on either side. In fact, Ernest Hemingway uh, wrote about the Battle of Hürtgenwald, saying whoever survived Hürtgenwald must have had a guardian angel on both shoulders. Yet at one point in the month of November, something astonishing happened during this battle. Within earshot of Langfeld and the men under his command, there was uttered a cry. It was the cry of an injured soldier lying in a minefield in part of no man's land between the enemy lines. It was the cry of an American soldier, an enemy soldier. While Langfeld heard these cries, they continued for some time. The American forces were too far to hear them and to respond, but Langfeld heard. And so after some time, he commanded his machine gunners not to shoot if Americans came to rescue the dying soldier. But no one showed up. By the time it was mid-morning, one writer puts it this way. He says, at that moment, Langfeld no longer heard the voice of an enemy. It was the voice of a fellow man drowning in an ocean of pain. So, perhaps uh, contrasting to his better judgment, Langfeld took action. He and some of his men donned Red Cross vests, and they began a move towards the American. When they saw him, Langfeld continued towards him. But that's when the real tragic thing happened. Langfeld stepped on an anti-personnel mine. He was fatally wounded and died later that evening. And to this day, we don't know if that American enemy soldier lived or died. It's a tragic story, but, but it's also a story that I think can make us kind of scratch our heads. I mean, in such a terrible battle, in such a, a terrible place, Friedrich Langfeld risked his life and then went on to, to give his life to save his enemy. To save a man who may have been shooting at him just hours or days before. Why? I mean, this sort of compassion and mercy, we can, we can laud it, we can praise it, but when we're in that position, I think it seems really unnatural, doesn't it? We all have instincts to self-preservation, to safety for those and those in our care. But Langfeld's compassion drove him to show mercy, even in the face of incredible danger to himself. Well, church, I was struck when I read that story. And I think it prepares us well to see Jesus' words to his followers here in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. So Jesus is preaching a sermon on a plane. Uh, he is giving ethical instructions to his followers about how to live as his disciples. He's not telling, this is important, he's not telling them how to be worthy of his love. He's telling them how they can live out his love as his followers. 
And so as we come to this text this morning, let's, let's be asking a question of this text for ourselves. Let's be asking, how in the world can we love our enemies? How is that even possible for us? So please follow along in your Bibles as I read for us from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. All right, so the question is, how can we love our enemies? And so with our time together this morning, church family, in this passage, let's answer that question with four responses. So to show love like this that seems so unnatural to us in our sinfulness, how in the world can we love our enemies? First, we can love our enemies because God will repay. We can love our enemies because God will repay. Second, we can love our enemies because God will reward. We can love our enemies because God will reward. Third, we can love our enemies because God loved his enemies. We can love our enemies because God loved his enemies. And then finally, we can love our enemies because God is our Father. We can love our enemies because God is our Father. So first, we can love our enemies because God will repay. Look with me, church, at verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So last week we saw uh, Jesus declaring in verses 20 through 26 that those who suffer for his name, who are persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, will be blessed. But for those who seek man's favor alone in this life, Jesus has said, woe to you. And so the context here is opposition to Jesus' followers because of their allegiance to him. So it seems like the, the primary kind of enemy Jesus is talking about in this text is the one who would oppose his followers because they're Christians, because they follow him. 
Perhaps we could expand it to other things, but I think that's the primary thing Jesus is saying. He's saying for those who would oppose those, his disciples, he says, love them back. Do good to them. When they curse you, bless them back. When they abuse you, pray for them. This is the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. So this sort of self-denying, self-sacrificing love is not natural to our self-centered hearts in our sin. So even when I was reading this text to my wife earlier this week, I found myself stumbling over these words. So I was literally reading the text, but I was saying, love your neighbor. And then I was like, wait, that's not what it says. And then I continued, do good to those who love you. And I was like, no, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was showing me my own cognitive dissonance, my own kind of not tracking with Jesus' upside-down commands in his upside-down kingdom. But for Christ's disciples, we are called to love. And not only love, but love those who hate us. Love the unlovable. Love our enemies. This is a mark of the follower of Jesus. And notice we are not only to absorb or remain neutral in the face of opposition. We are to actively reach out in love. Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Now, prayer, we can often think of as sort of a passive thing. It's, it does not really accomplishing or being productive in any way. But here, prayer is an active way to love an enemy. So the New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes, Intercession to God for the opponent is one of the highest forms of love. I wonder, Christian, how often do you pray for your enemies? There in verse 29, Jesus goes on to give some clear illustrations of how this love can work itself out in the lives of his followers. And he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Jesus is teaching us how we as his followers must treat those who would wrong us. And his first example there is, is one that's really well known, even for those who don't read the Bible. It's of a strike on the cheek. Uh, this, I think, pictures for us a sort of slap of the back of the hand, sort of an insult. Jesus says when you receive that sort of insult, you must turn the other cheek. What does that mean? I don't think it just says like, oh, that felt good. Do, do it here now. Do it here now. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, when that happens and it stings and you're embarrassed, don't run the other way. Don't get defensive, but continue to obey. Continue to speak my name, even if it means you might get another slap, another insult. He speaks next of someone who had taken not only an outer cloak, but also a tunic, which was an inner, inner piece of clothing. Uh, I, it's possible that what's in view here is, is a robbery scenario. So Jesus says, if you're, if you're my followers and you're going along and you're being robbed, don't resist. In verse 30, we read about those who would ask for money for their needs or take goods for themselves. And Jesus says, give it to them. 
Followers of Christ will be content in Christ alone and therefore less wedded to their stuff. Now, a few things should be said at this point. First, this passage is speaking directly, I think, and primarily to the follower of Christ in the context of persecution for Christ. So this isn't meant to apply it in the same way to someone, let's say, carrying out their duties as a police officer or a soldier who, as part of their job, must exert appropriate force. So in Romans 13, after all, we see that governmental authority is God-given to punish wickedness. No, this idea of surrender to persecution ought to characterize our lives as followers of Christ, particularly, I think, when we are being opposed for Christ's sake. I think we should also be clear that, that these commands from Christ aren't meant, there's nuance. They're not meant to be taken literally at all times. There's wisdom. So, for the abused wife, for example, I don't think this passage gives your husband a pass and encourages you to stay silent. You should get help and seek to remove yourself from harm's way. The Bible talks about the evil of oppression and abuse. But with that said, Jesus still is speaking boldly and teaching us about our lives. He's laying down the patterns of our love and how our love ought to be informed as his followers. So one author puts it this way. He says, Jesus is speaking in extreme terms in order to make a serious point about the way his followers love. Even in the crucible of insult and wrong, Christian love should be generous, forbearing, patient, and gracious. So again, with all this in mind, the question still bounces around in my head, how can we do this? I think it seems too hard. Well, even though it's not explicit in these opening verses, I think we catch a glimpse of the first way we're going to see this morning in how we can be free to love even our enemies, even those who would mistreat us. And that is that we can allow our enemies to get away with injustice because eventually they won't. So in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, then, Paul writes, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To me, that's helpful, because I think we see a direct link between sort of this freedom uh, of, of being able to suffer injustice and persecution, even with joy, and a direct line connecting that reality with the reality that God, the judge, will eventually make everything right on earth. That's freeing. I don't think it makes it easier. I think it just makes it make more sense. For some of you, that might sound a little harsh or vindictive. Like, you know, I'll put up with you right now. I'll put up with your slaps. But hey, just FYI, you're going to get yours soon. That's not the posture of heart that Jesus is speaking of. God frees us to show his compassion because his justice will not go unserved. And so we can love our enemies because God will repay, not us. 
We can love our enemies because in the end, evil will not win. Righteousness will triumph. And so there's a sort of rest in that. So as we suffer persecution in this way, as we look at these first few verses, are Christians in their love supposed to be doormats? No. We're meant to be disciples. Are we supposed to be pushovers? No. We are supposed to be practitioners of mercy. Our identity is in Jesus, our suffering Savior, and in that is true strength. And so there in verse 31, Jesus gives us what has been called the golden rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is the heartbeat of Christian love. Second point this morning, how in the world can we love our enemies? Second answer, we can love our enemies because God will reward. So there, look with me at verse 32. Jesus starts and he gives three straight questions and answers about Christian love. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus is saying Christian love is not typical. Of course, love within a family, love to those you know will love you back, is fine, it's good, it's, it's created by God. But most everyone shares that sort of love, follower of Christ or not. Jesus is calling us to a love that goes above and beyond. It's love not just to those who can reciprocate. It's generosity not just to those who can pay you back. It's Christ-like love. It's sacrificial love. Even love for the unlovable. Love for enemies. That is the kind of love that will mark a disciple of Christ. This is the kind of love that will make the world scratch their heads. Christ-like love gives without expectation of repayment. Christ-like love is given to objects of mercy, not to the deserving. This runs against the recommendation of the world, doesn't it? But there in verse 35, we see another great reason Christians are to show this over and above, beyond, over and, above and beyond and, and just... Odd, odd, typical, unusual kind of Christ-like love. Jesus says, But love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See, ultimately, we will get something in return. But not from those around us, but from our Savior. He has promised us reward with him forever. This kind of love is wonderful. It doesn't get us into heaven. Love for enemy, enemies doesn't get us into heaven. It doesn't forgive us our sins. Only Christ's love has done that for us. But it does begin to show who we are. It reveals our identity as the sons and daughters of God. The church family, when you suffer for the name of Christ, however that looks in your life, look to heaven. Look ahead. Look to the future. We saw that last week, didn't we? 
Look ahead to the day promised you. Look ahead to the Savior awaiting you. Look ahead to the God who will welcome you. I wonder how often do you think upon, meditate on, consider eternity with the Lord? I know I can be so consumed with the here and now that I can so easily forget the promises of the yet to come. This sermon from Christ urges us, like we saw last week, urges us to delay satisfaction, to delay gratification and ultimate contentment until the day Jesus returns and makes all things right. He will reward us. He will take us to himself. What a day of rejoicing that will be. What an encouragement to endure suffering then for the sake of Christ. We can love our enemies. We can show this above and beyond kind of love, this love that is alien to our world because God will reward us. And we look forward to that day. Third point this morning then. We can love our enemies because God loved his enemies. I'm reminded of this there at the end of verse 35. Did you catch that? Jesus says of his father, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Church, in our sin, that's us. See, even before we can begin to imagine how to love our enemies, we must remember who we were, God's enemies. So in Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Christian, do you remember who you were? The Bible says you were lost in your sin. You were dead in your rebellion. You didn't even know how to call out to God. And if you did, you wouldn't because you wanted to remain king of your own life. Remember what God did. Remember how he reached out to you in that state of rebellion. He didn't destroy you. He didn't neglect you. He didn't forget you. He sent his son to die for you. Oh, nothing, nothing in the world can melt our hearts in love for enemies like a vision of Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies, for you and me. Jesus came to us and we hated him. Our sin cursed him and hung him on a tree. And even when sinners abused him and nailed him to a cross, he prayed for those abusing him. He blessed those cursing him. He blessed and prayed for sinners like you and me. Do you remember that? Hopefully, Lord willing, in the months and maybe a year or so to come, we'll get to the end of Luke. And we'll see in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus hanging on the cross and praying and saying, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, God has made enemies into friends, even into sons and daughters. When we opposed him, he sent his own precious son to die for us. Our status has now been permanently changed from enemy to child. And no one can snatch us out of the hand of our father. Living in light of that gospel truth will mean we show that sort of gospel love to those who wrong us, to those who oppose us, to those who persecute us, and even prove themselves unworthy of our love. 
Church, rejoice, for our God is an enemy-loving God. How do we know that? Because he has loved us. If you're tuning in this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you realize that the Bible categorizes you as an enemy of God. So even if you don't think you have a particular bone to pick with God, even if you're actually quite a fan of God, the Bible teaches that if you have not humbled yourself and repented of your sin and turned to God in faith through Christ and what he has done, you're still his enemy. You may not feel like you hate him, but you're sort of acknowledging him kind of on the periphery of your life, but then kind of living your life how you want to live it is actually cosmic treason against the sovereign of the universe. It's setting yourself up as his enemy and he will judge you for that. Unless, unless he judges Jesus instead. See, Jesus came and took on the enemy status of all who would trust in him, took on all their sin, and was judged by God for that sin so that if anyone would repent and turn, they would be saved. They would be made God's child forever. Won't you come to God humbly now so you can be no longer enemy but friend? Won't you do that now while there's time? Instead of coming to him at the judgment, thinking all along you were friendly with him and you'll get in fine, only realizing you had lived your life for yourself as his enemy. Come to him. If you have questions about that, feel free to use the Facebook message or go online and find our email address. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus and to become his child, not his enemy. And church, think about your regular areas of service and ministry. Even during this time of pandemic, where, where are you given the most opportunity to, to minister and to bless other people? So when you, when you serve others, when you find opportunity to be generous, is it always with those who are pretty much in the same situation as you? The same tax bracket, the same sort of air, economic status, people who are self-sufficient, Someone someday will probably repay your generosity with a gift of their own. That's, that's okay. I mean, we're supposed to share love together as a church, regardless of who somebody is. That's fine. But if that's the only way you ever show generosity, I don't think you're following the instruction of your Savior here in Luke chapter 6. See, what really pictures the gospel in vivid color is generosity towards those who have no hope or ability to ever pay you back. That's the way the gospel came to you. How are you showing that gospel generosity to others? All right. We've seen three responses to the question, how can we love our, our enemy? And finally, we come to our last point. We can love our enemies because God is our father. Look with me finally at verse 36. Jesus says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So as we live this selfless, sacrificial love for enemies, we will be displaying for all to see our identity as the true children of God. 
See, this is the way God's children behave. This is the way those in God's family show their family resemblance. We love like God loves. We love like how our Father loves. Our Father loves the unlovable, therefore we do as well. Our Father is merciful to the hater and the persecutor, therefore we are as well. We do this because we follow not ourselves, but our Father in heaven. Our Father who is characterized by mercy and grace. As one author puts it, when we love like God, we demonstrate our identity as children of the Most High. And church, this is incredibly encouraging. Because loving enemies is really, really hard. But actually, the strength to do it doesn't come from you at all. At least primarily. The strength to do it comes from your new identity in Christ your new father in heaven. As you grow in holiness, you grow to be more like him. You begin to mimic him more, like a son mimics his father. You watch him, and you live out your lives in light of his amazing grace to you. So, when I'm in the mood for country music, which is few and far between nowadays, sorry, there have been times in my past where it was more consistent. But when I'm in the mood for country, one of my favorite country songs is Watching You by Rodney Atkins. A song all about a father having to come to grips with his son copying his every move. And how that's both encouraging and scary. And the chorus is, is a son speaking to his father and saying, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. And eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and Camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. Church, there's something to learn there about how we relate to our Father in heaven. See, we have been loved by an enemy-loving God. We have experienced that grace. And we now want to live to know God better and to love him more as our Father. We want to mimic his moves and copy his actions, because this is the new life we have been saved into. Are you living that new life, Christian? As one of my mentors has written, we are not being forced to do something unnatural to us when we obey the commands of this passage, but we are simply living out the love that we have received by the Father. Isn't that encouraging? Because throughout this whole time this morning, we've been talking about how unnatural this is. And yes, our sin and our sinful flesh is not yet glorified, and so we still feel the tug. But in Christ, as those who have been loved like this, well, now it's natural. We are those who have been changed from enemies to the sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. What wonderful news that God sent his Son to die for his enemies so we could be saved. Thinking back to the story we began with this morning, when Lieutenant Friedrich Langfeld died trying to save that enemy soldier in the Hurken Forest, he was merely 23 years old. And in commemoration of his act of mercy, Langfeld, as one source puts it, became the only German soldier of World War II who has a monument raised in his honor by Americans. And on the monument, up on the, you can see this 
if you search for it, up on the top of the monument is an inscription that says, No man hath greater love than he who layeth down his life for his enemy. Church, this is what Jesus has done for us. Let's go and love others like that. Let's pray. Lord, we admit this is a hard thing to think about doing. Loving our enemies. For some of us, our enemies who oppose us because we love you, uh, they spring quickly to mind. For others of us, maybe we haven't been bold enough for you to actually make enemies yet. But Lord, you have promised to your people that we will face opposition because we belong to you, that we will suffer because we follow a suffering Savior. So Lord, would you just bring to mind for our church family now people who have opposed us, either past, present, maybe coming up, we can, uh, we can anticipate it, have opposed us for our allegiance to you. It could be in our families, it could be our friends, it could be uh, people in our school or our workplace. Lord, would you help us to be so enamored with your love for us that we can't help but to pray for them, to seek to love them like you have loved us. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, that's all for now. Uh, as we usually do on Sunday evenings, we will have a Zoom prayer meeting tonight at 7 p.m., so I send out a link. But if you lost that, please reach out to me by text or email. All are invited to that. Bring a friend if you'd like. But for now, let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.